Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. How do we properly define cultural appropriation, and is it always wrong? If we can write in the voice of another, should we? And if so, what questions do we need to consider first? In her new book, Appropriate, a Provocation, creative writing professor and Utah poet laureate Paisley Rectal addresses a young writer to delineate how the idea of cultural appropriation has evolved and perhaps calcified in our political climate. Paisley Rectal's books of poetry and prose include The Night My Mother Met Bruce Lee, A Crash of Rhinos, Animal Eye, The Broken Country, and Nightingale. She's a former recipient of Guggenheim and NEA fellowships. She's Utah Poet Laureate and Distinguished Professor of English at University of Utah. Paisley Rectal, a pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So this is a fascinating book, uh, very timely, of course. Um, this is addressed, uh, the, the format is addressed to a young writer. Uh, so I'm guessing this is based on real discussions, what, in class, among colleagues, with fellow writers? Yeah, um, even though the person I have addressed the book to does not actually exist, this is sort of a conglomeration of many conversations I've had with students over the past 25 years of teaching, colleagues, writers in the field. You get two writers together, and we immediately start talking about what it's like to deal with these issues in classrooms and in writing workshops where we teach, but then also in our own work. So it, it pretty much organically comes out of that. So uh, I, I want to treat the scenario that you do. The very first page here, you you address uh, Dear X, this the, the student here, the fictional student, um, who has, apparently in a workshop, uh, presented a poem, uh, a monologue in the voice of a black nurse who worked in uh, her uh, their uh, white grandmother's home in Georgia. And you say your poem was meant to be a complex double portrait of both the black caregiver and the white grandmother and the racist logic and history that bound them both. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's ambitious. And that, isn't that a laudable thing, right, to, to attempt that? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I think most people who start to um, engage in what we would consider appropriative literary practices or cultural appropriative literary practices would um, say that their intentions are good and that they are usually thinking very much about the complexities of racial history and the complexities about the ways that different identities are portrayed uh, and imagined both in society and in art. So I take that seriously, even though those intentions don't finally matter to the outcome that shows up on the page. Um, And I think that that's what most writers that want to get better as writers understand, which is that you can create a piece of art and you can have all of these ideas of how it's supposed to be read. But the reality is that readers are active participants in the creation of art. When they read, they take um, different meanings. They dig down into language that you might have not thought as carefully about. And they're going to see something that maybe you didn't intend. And so um, even though I take very seriously the goodwill and intention of the writers that are trying to create this art, I don't take that as um, the, the critical apparatus through which we read that art. I want to have you underline that. Uh, you're saying, you know, you can have all the good intentions in the world, but it, um, but, but when it goes out into the world, it's not your own anymore, right? And, and therefore, exactly. good intentions don't matter that much. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. I mean, it's that's one of the things that's both um, exciting about literature and can be sometimes a little dismaying. I think every writer out there has had the experience where they create something and then they take it into a workshop or they take it out <clears throat> into a reading space or it gets published. 
and suddenly you you know someone writes back and says did you did you mean this argument did you did you think about what this character means and you suddenly realize no I didn't um, and it can be quite um, startling and sometimes dismaying to realize that you can end up writing into or around a stereotype without ever having intended to do that uh, so how do how do we define cultural appropriation well, that's a great question. <laughs> and it's funny because I spent a lot of time in the book breaking down the word appropriation and all the different types of practices that go into appropriation. So I'm just going to set aside cultural appropriation for the minute because cultural appropriation is part of some of these literary practices. So um, one of the reasons that this becomes such a sticky topic is that a lot of us recognize that appropriation is a deeply embedded literary and artistic practice. So for instance, if you re- rewrite a famous myth or a fairy tale from another culture, that's a form of appropriation. You've taken one story from one kind of cultural context and adapted it for our own uses to the contemporary moment. And that's a kind of adaptation that we do all the time, and we recognize that. Um, also, so we call that a kind of con- or sorry, motif appropriation or adaptation. Then there's subject appropriation, which is if you're writing a story or a novel or have a poem that has a character that is very unlike you. Um, maybe they're a different race, a different sexual orientation, a different ability position. That is a form of subject appropriation. Cultural appropriation can be either cultural or motif or content appropriation or subject appropriation, but usually it is one that Um, engages and reifies certain types of negative stereotypes that we have about these these people that we're writing about or these other cultures from which we're borrowing and taking um, our motifs. Cultural appropriation in law largely means that you've taken an object from another culture without that culture's permission and for your own benefit. And I think that that question of benefit is really important here because... um, you know, there's financial benefit, there's psychological benefit, and then there's also um, a kind of uh, racial hierarchical benefit, which is that how is it that some of these portrayals that we put on the page actually benefit um, certain groups of people socially while denigrating other people? And that's why I like to keep cultural appropriation outside of other appropriative literary practices, because I think we can all see some types of appropriation are not only um, used often in literature, but often lauded. So cultural appropriation stands as a particularly kind of negative practice that is appropriative, that really is, again, as I'm saying, about sort of um, buying back into racial or racist hierarchies, um, at gendered hierarchies, uh, sometimes unconsciously and sometimes very consciously. For it, I want to uh, get into some examples, maybe contemporary examples, but I want to back up just uh, slightly. Uh, so where does your, your book Nightingale fit in? Sure, you thought through a lot of these issues. Yeah. Tell us what Nightingale yeah, is. My, yeah, so Nightingale is a book of poetry that rewrites Ovid's Metamorphoses. So the entire book is appropriative. Um, that's one of the things that's kind of amusing to me. Um, I've written many works that I think a lot of people would consider appropriative, not just um, positive appropriations, but potentially negative ones too. So in Nightingale, for instance, I have several poems that are um, basically kind of imagined stories, retaking some of Ovid's um, myths and putting them in a contemporary context. So in the uh, poem Tiresias, for example, I imagine a mother who has a son who is trans. The son is undergoing his own operation to fully become 
um, a son, and she herself is going through cancer, and she's trying to understand this change to her own body. And so as she loses a daughter to gain more fully her son, um, she herself is losing some aspects of herself. So some people would look at that and say, well, you know, you're not trans. You don't have a trans child. You, you have no right to that story. And I didn't write from the trans child's perspective. I wrote from the mother's perspective. But it's an example of subject appropriation. Then there's, of course, uh, motif appropriation, which happens throughout the book, which is, you know, how is it that I'm taking Ovid's stories and <clears throat> his own rewriting of the myth and, and rewriting him for a very different kind of contemporary audience? I would argue, though, that, you know, there are, this is the thing about literary texts, that once they enter a kind of cultural marketplace of ideas, um, over time and through sharing and through global reading pra- practices, they start to become communally owned and changed and adapted. And works like, you know, the Iliad or the Odyssey or the Metamorphoses or the Divine Comedy, they become so part of our cultural framework for, that's so widely shared that they start to become texts whose use is to be appropriated. So I don't think many people would actually look askance at the idea of rewriting those myths because there's an understanding that I've really not taken anything away from ancient Greece um, that hasn't already been taken away a thousand times before. So where people would be nervous would be like, well, when you're writing about, say, someone who's disabled, because I also have another poem in there in which I imagine a woman who has become a quadriplegic. Well, you're not quadriplegic, so why are you writing this? And I will say that I have a friend who's quadriplegic and is also a poet. So I did share my work with him and said, you know, what did I get wrong? And he told me what I got wrong. So, I mean, you know, it's it's also on the writer to be able to say, okay, if I'm going to take on this material, what is the research, what is the imaginative um, work that has to go in before I, 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 I engage with this topic? And what are the risks by publishing this kind of work do I also um, end up, you know, like what kind of risks do I also engage by publishing this work? Um, let's talk a little bit about American Dirt. Uh, this is being huh? famously held up as, as appropriative, right? Um, yeah. Uh, so th- those who uh, don't know what the book's about, it's about a uh, Mexican woman who, uh, under a ser- series of circumstances, uh, flees to the U.S., becomes an undocumented yeah. uh, immigrant. Uh, so it is, is the problem that Janine Cummins is not Hispanic? Is that the problem? What? No. Um, for some, and this is where it gets complicated, right? Because for some people, that is where the problem solely lies. And I'm actually not one of those people that believes that's where the problem lies. I don't actually believe that there's um, any sort of authentic identity position that once you write from that will guarantee that your work does not also perpetual stereotypes. I mean, I think we can imagine and, and, and think of writers that sort of don't present their own communities well. So I don't think there's anything inherently uh, connected between the body and the art that that body can produce. So for me, the problem is around something that Janine Cummins herself could not control. So Janine Cummins is writing the story of uh, Mexican and indigenous migrants fleeing across the border to get into the United States. And she's clearly done her research. And if you read the book, um, you know, you can tell how much research she's done. And she's also been very aware that how um, certain Mexican migrants have been depicted in politics and in and culture in America. So she bends over backwards to make these incredibly sympathetic characters incredibly noble, noteworthy people who we are meant to identify with. 
Um, and I'll get into one of the reasons that I think actually that's also problematic mm-hmm. in a minute. But what happens is that she has also sort of interestingly depoliticized um, the entire migrant crisis. She's made it a thriller. Um, and her book was bought on the premise that her book could be widely read and appealing to a white audience that might be indifferent to some of the larger political discussions that are happening around the migrant crisis. And this is something that Sandra Cisneros, who blurbed her book, positively even said and admitted. She said, you know, if I wrote a book about the migrant crisis. Um, a lot of white people might not want to read it because they'll see my last name and they'll think, oh, I know what she's going to say. And so... Um, What she's acknowledging, I think, is a real true true factor about the publishing world, that the publishing world is largely white-dominated. The editors are largely white. Um, The imagined readership, whether or not that's true, is imagined as white. Most of the comparative titles are based on white authors' sales. And so there's this idea that um, out there, which may be true or may be false, that white people don't necessarily want to read a political story about the migrant crisis. And so they can give a seven-figure advance and an Oprah Winfrey Book Club nomination to somebody who performs that. And the person most likely to perform that is someone who doesn't necessarily see this as an inherently political um, story or has depoliticized it in such a way that it would appeal to a mass market audience. So what Cummins has done, even as she is incredibly well-meaning, and that's telegraphed on every page, is she's sold her book into a marketplace that capitalizes on certain certain authors' imaginative freedom. Um, white writers are imagined to have a, a more, quote-unquote, universal storytelling um, <laughs> ability uh, that white readers will be able to um, respond to something that does not come with a Latinx name. And so what happens is that uh, Latinx writers entering this marketplace will find that their own stories of the border aren't nearly as well-received by editors, um, potentially not as well economically rewarded. And that's what I think really infuriated a lot of people. Uh, and I think that's a real complaint. Um, you know, there's a, a, a whole series of articles that have come out of late uh, about publishing and what publishing pays writers of color versus white writers. And it is shocking. Um, you know, Jessamyn Ward, who has won the National Book Award not once but twice, had to struggle to get a six-figure advance for her book, whereas a white magazine <clears throat> author who pitched, merely pitched an idea, got something like $400,000 from it for, you know, <laughs> um, for her, her work. So, you know, there are real discrepancies based on this idea of what the marketplace is interested in. And it turns out the marketplace does not seem to be interested in the stories of writers of color by writers of color. Uh, you, you mentioned something uh, in passing, uh, and I want to have you uh, talk about this. Uh, you, you talked about uh, the Janine Cummings, uh, Cummins um, very well-intentioned and is working overtime yeah. to present positive images of, uh, you know, of people of color here. Uh, but you say that mm-hmm. that can be problematic. Yeah, one of the things. Okay, I mean, I feel I I kind of feel bad actually bashing this book because um, it's it's just not a very good book, <laughs> but it's a perfect example of all of the issues that cultural appropriation raises. One of the reasons it's not a particularly good book is that um, these are very sentimentally drawn figures. This is um, on the level of <clears throat> character building. I would say that this is very much like Uncle Tom's Cabin, where these um, all of the migrants 
we are allowed to identify with them because they're all women, <laughs> which is quite interesting. They're all women. Many of them are very attractive. Um, you know, they're children. But the child is already fluent from having watched English lessons on YouTube. Um, the mother, who, who is, you know, beautifully taking care of this son, it's a very sensitively drawn portrait. But the mother herself is a bookseller. She's middle class. The teenager girls who are also protagonists of this story are, are, are beautiful and, and, and they're raped. And everyone, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a, an argument that the book seems to be making consistently, which is that these are um, very docile, unthreatening, um, not frightening figures in any way. They're very easy to assimilate. And, you know, James Baldwin wrote a wonderful essay many years ago called, you know, Everybody's Protest Novel, interestingly, about Uncle Tom's Cabin. And in it, he said, you know, one of the one of the problems with Uncle Tom's Cabin, even as it kicked off this abolitionist movement and really, you know, really made that powerful, helped make that powerful, is that, um, you know, it doesn't critique the very systems, the, the Christian systems that makes for slavery. And he says that there's an interesting sort of lapse there. And I think you can sort of say the same thing about American dirt, or dirt, which is that we're meant to thrill to these people's terrible plights, um, the ways in which they're relentlessly traumatized. Um, they are pathetic figures that we can, we can um, idealize and sentimentalize, but there's no sense that the novel might pause and sort of say, you know, it's interesting that they have to flee to America, and this idea, you know, the ways they're treated even by Americans uh, in the book sort of doesn't get um, really quite examined. So there's an entire political scaffolding that the, the, the novel sort of dodges in order to, you know, make us feel something without having to think much about it. And I think that's one of the reasons to me that the novel does start to feel appropriative, because I don't feel like um, she's made some of these characters complex enough to really challenge some of the sentimental idealism um, that, that, that the book is capitalizing on, frankly. How much of this is, and I take all of your arguments there, but how much of this is, I guess I'll phrase it this way, um, uh, can a white author ever write a, a book, uh, you know, in the voice of and from the perspective of a person of color without it being culturally appropriative? Well, that's a great question. Um, I would say, yeah, they can. Um, it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of research. I mean, there's there have been novels, oh, and I can't remember the name of the novel. It kills me, unfortunately. But um, very recently there was a, a novel written um, in the voice of African-American characters, and that, that writer was Asian-American, actually. And the question of, of cultural appropriation came up again, too. There are people, I think, that would sort of say, for historical reasons and for good reasons, perhaps even if the treatment is respectful, even if the portrayal is quote-unquote accurate, whatever that may be, um, we're writing in a, a publishing system, in a social system, that itself privileges certain voices, certain uh, perspectives. And so, to a certain extent, you can get it right and wrong simultaneously. And I think that there are, for some, some readers out there, there's a very hard line drawn around this issue. And it does go down to the question of history, and it goes down to the question of money. And for them, there is no portrayal that will ever satisfy them, because for them, it's not about the portrayal so much. It's about kinds of cultural ownership and who historically is owned um, and who has benefited. 
um, from these stories and these motifs and, and these particular narratives. And I'm sympathetic to that. I absolutely am. But I would also say that that relies on another kind of belief and fantasy, which is um, that only portrayals by and about people of color, for people of color, are going to somehow solve this crisis. And I don't think that's entirely the case. I think that what happens with art and literature is that it's an evolving conversation. It really isn't just up to one group of people to sort of solve this issue. It's kind of up to everybody to solve this this problem. And so um, if we think of literature as a constant and evolving conversation, more and more people have been engaged in this and will be engaged in this. And in fact, it's through that conversation that it happens. I would also say that it is also based on another kind of fantasy, which is that at some point, um, maybe things will tip. Maybe uh, editors will, there'll be enough editors of color, there'll be enough writers of color, there'll be enough people rewarded for their work who are writers of color that suddenly the question of being able to write in someone else's voice will cease to matter. Well, the question there is, how many? You know, what is, what is that number? There is no magic number, right? Because history, the more we know about history the, and, and the deeper we get into it, it will feel like an intractable, unsolvable problem. And the numbers themselves just don't, don't do anything. So if we're somehow waiting for some kind of, um, you know, signal that this is fine because we've achieved some sort of equity, the reality is probably we're never going to achieve that kind of equity. And if that's the case, are we actually going to say to ourselves, um, okay, since we never are going to achieve equity, we can never, ever, ever expect any artist to ever step out these sides of, outside of these lines? From a practical standpoint, that's just not going to happen. And from my own perspective as a writer, I don't think it should happen. Um, once we start saying this is a yes-no kind of scenario, yes, you can write in the voice of someone else, no, you can't, everyone is forced into really stupid and unsatisfying uh, positions. If I say, yeah, you can write in the voice of somebody else, I'm ignoring history and I'm ignoring the deep and powerful and long-lasting effects of colonialism. But if I say, no, you know, no, you can never write in the voice of somebody else, well, then I'm just ignoring literature. And as a writer of color myself, you know, the idea that somehow certain people are allowed certain types of subject matters and their others aren't suggests that there is some sort of authentic experience to being raced. Um, that is static and unbreakable and will be policed from within. And I just don't think that's true either. So even if it's, it boxes in, I mean, what basically what happens is this kind of argument boxes in every artist from every kind of position. So the reality is I think we have to have a much more nuanced conversation, which is to say, instead of yes or no, can you, can't you, can a white person do this, can't a person, white person do that, why don't we ask what happens when somebody does do this, what are the desires that are on display? Um, when a white person writes in the voice of someone of color, um, what does that portrayal look like? You know, does it duplicate something we've seen before? Does it not duplicate something we've seen before? And I think that's a more interesting um, and helpful place, not just as readers, but as writers. If you just joined us, we're talking with Paisley Rechtal. She's Utah's uh, Poet Laureate, creative writing professor at the University of Utah. Her new book, a uh, very interesting book, Appropriate, A Provocation, uh, talking about cultural appropriation. That's our subject for the hour today. Uh, we're going to take a break, uh, come back with more with Paisley Rechtal. You can join this conversation by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com. More following this. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. How do we properly define cultural appropriation, and is it always wrong? If we can write in the voice of another, should we? And if so, what questions do we need to consider first? 
Uh, Paisley Rectal's new book is called Appropriate, a Provocation, uh, which addresses these questions. Paisley Rectal is creative writing professor at University of Utah and Utah Poet Laureate, and she's with us for the hour. You can join us here as well with your question or comment uh, by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Uh, so, Paisley Rectal, you, uh, you, you were talking about uh, maybe problems with an overly rigid view of authenticity and uh, maybe an overly rigid view of cultural appropriation. And you mentioned, I want to have you expand on this, you mentioned that that, that kind of thinking also boxes in uh, writers of color. Yeah. So oftentimes, one of the things that's, that drives everybody a little crazy, including myself, is that all of us recognize that race and ethnicity are, are cultural constructions. Ethnicity in particular, because, well, I should say race in particular, both of them are. Um, race in itself means nothing. Um, race is constructed over um, generations of sort of socially imagined ideas about what a racial identity is supposed to consist of, what it's supposed to mean. So there are no behaviors linked to race. There are no psychological realities uh, linked inherently to race. That's not to say, however, that behaviors and psychological realities can't finally emerge from um, being raced and being perceived as having a particular kind of race. Uh, And by that, I mean, like, oftentimes so many different types of characteristics we assign a kind of racial value to. So, for instance, we think someone's good with money. That's a racial stereotype, right? Um, If we think someone's a good dancer, that's a racial stereotype. Someone's good at sports or someone's good at math. You know, these these end up also having sorts of racial stereotypes. But we also can recognize that they don't mean anything. So we know this. We know this. We know their stereotypes. We know that they don't have any inherent value. They are socially constructed. And yet, at the same time, both people on the right and the left of this argument, I think, end up also not wanting to let that go. Even as we say, okay, we know that these kinds of things are social constructions, we also know that race um, and racial identity can create patterns of behavior. Um, And you know, that, that those patterns of behavior can become something that authenticates um, somebody as someone from that group or starts to signal that they're someone from that kind of group. And so there's this really delicate, difficult, complex balance between is that authentic or is that something that is socially constructed? And when we say to people, okay, well, you know, if you're writing outside your cultural, you know, position or your racial position, your identity position, you know, how is it that you're going to write somebody in a way that we all recognize as that person um, to, stand, to stand in for that kind of group? What we're also asking people to do is to perform a kind of um, culturally received stereotype. Now, for writers of color, and I've noticed this over and over and over again, especially in the last decade, there's an understanding, especially in, a, I think, a, a white dominated literary landscape that one thing that defines the writer of color is a kind of racial trauma, the experience of, you know, enduring racism and potentially the idea of overcoming racism in a very particular way. And so a lot of stories of, um, by writers of color that have been promoted and widely disseminated and bought and, and read are ones that focus in on what we consider a kind of racial trauma. And this has some real negative effects, I think, for writers of color as well, which is how is it that in order to sort of authenticate themselves um, for, you know, a, a white audience or an audience that has been primed 
to see um, their stories as authentic in a particular way, how is it that they are then encouraged to write these same kind of narratives of racial trauma? And it, it means a kind of aesthetic and an imaginative narrowing for writers of color, just as it, you know, a lot of people, when we think about the cultural appropriation argument, people get very upset saying that this is about limiting the imagination of all writers, you know, but largely meaning white writers. Why can't I write about anything I want? Well, I've just described why you can't write anything you want, simply because of the problems of history. But this also means a limitation in the imagination for writers of color who are imagined to have one kind of subject matter. And unless they perform that subject matter, their stories will not be deemed authentic, not just by uh, white editors and potentially white readers, but also writers of color who feel like, well, this is the important narrative we have to keep telling. And we have to keep telling it because white writers, when they appropriate, get it wrong. So, I mean, one of the things that um, this, this goes back to something that um, was talked about before, you know, the, the, the problem of a single story. When we have limited portrayals and representations of people of color and people from different identity positions and women and, you know, different sexual orientations, when we have limited representations of different identities, we have a very narrow window for what we will accept as authentic. And ultimately, that creates a great kind of pressure on the artist coming from the, from that community to sort of either respond to that, rewrite that, or be sort of pigeonholed by that. Uh, I wonder if we could do maybe a, a, another couple of examples. One that's, that struck me in, in the book, I wonder if you tell us about this. Um, you had, uh, I think, read and enjoyed a poem, I don't know how many years past, William Meredith's Effort at Speech. And then, mm-hmm. uh, then pulled this out to, to teach this to students and, and <laughs> discovered that, that time had moved on. Tell us about this. Yeah. Yeah. This, um, <laughs> this happens, I think, to a lot of teachers. And, um, and it happened to me fairly recently where I had been teaching a class on poetic forms. And one of the forms I was teaching was the sapphic form. And I'm, I'm sure most readers don't know what this is. It's a very unusual poetic form because it has a very particular kind of rhythm, which is not normal to English speech. Um, what, so there's only a few poems in English that actually attempt this form and do it well. And I remembered one from when I was in college. And it was called Effort at Speech by William Meredith, who's a white writer. And I remember thinking, oh, this is a wonderful poem, because in it, um, Meredith's narrator, who is also white, describes a mugging he endures um, from a young teenager who is racially sort of, you know, he's basically brown. (laughs) We don't know exactly what his racial background is, Um, but... You know, he's wa- the white narrator's walking in a particular uh, neighborhood and, and is mugged. And in, in the poem, he starts to think about, well, couldn't he, what if, what if he had just been able to speak to his attacker? And um, then the poem goes there. And I remember, remember the poem from when I read it in college, uh, where, you know, I thought of it as a fairly sympathetic portrayal of black and brown men. And when I pulled it out and read it for the class, the class was horrified, and they were giving me this look like, uh, that you know, what's wrong with me? You know, are you a racist? Do you, do you like this poem? Because up to that point, I had been bringing in poems that I loved and had no, no, no kind of philosophical problems with. And um, so when I reread it with, you know, new eyes, I suddenly thought, wow, this is a really sentimentally um, racist portrait, because in the poem, Meredith depicts his assailant as somehow inarticulate, coming out of a place where 
Um, he he had been educated or not educated um, to appreciate decorous human values, quote unquote, as as Meredith says, um, somebody who lives in a place of decay and death and despair. And, you know, at that time, Meredith is using these tropes to portray um, his assailant in the most uh, empathetic light imaginable. He's trying to say, well, you know, of course, luckless and lied to, quote unquote, how could this kid know human decorum, quote unquote. And and it's this idea that the child somehow lacks the basic um, education and humanity that Meredith's own speaker has that, you know, everyone saw and I saw very clearly. And I think that that was a really important lesson for me as a teacher, but also as a writer. And it's a, an important lesson for all of us to remember, which is, you know, we produce art in our moment. And when Meredith wrote that poem, probably there would have been some writers that would have said, oh, that's, that's actually kind of you know, bad. But the bulk of writers were like, oh, this this seems okay. <laughs> this, this seems all right. I mean, that was the, the title poem for a, a very well-received collection of his poems. So he obviously, you know, was very well um, rewarded for that, and people liked that. But we write our own portrayals of race and identity for our moment, which means that guaranteed in 20 years, 40 years, our portrayals will probably look pretty bad to a lot of people as well. And I think we have to remember that um, because, you know, you can't when we when we're thinking about um, you know what to do with the problematic text. What do we do with Janine Cummins? What do we do with um, you know William Meredith? Do we just sort of say this is trash? We never read it again? Or is there a kind of value in reading this as an almost um, you know social social historian? You know, what did what did what did we used to think about race? What did we used to think about identity? And how have those ideas changed? Um, and, and why have they changed? And I think that's, that's really useful to remember. Are there other books that you ha- have, uh, you know, really enjoyed in childhood or youth or maybe earlier in your career and, uh, uh, and remembered a certain way and then went back to uh, under this uh, heading? <laughs> you know, it's funny because um, I can't think of many books right now, but I can think of a lot of movies. And so I had this experience, this is a pandemic experience. I was sitting and, and feeling sorry for myself, so I thought I would um, watch some old 80s movies, you know, things from my teenage years that would cheer me up. And so I watched St. Elmo's Fire. That is a dar- yeah, garbage fire. Like, it's just, you know, when you watch it and you realize, oh, my gosh. And what's, what's also instructive about that, is when you when you go back to reread or rewatch some of the shows um, or you know the movies or read the books that informed you as a child, you know you metabolize these ideas. Suddenly, I realized like you know the ways in which my own sort of conservatism was forged, and it made me you know re-question some of my ideas about men and women and relationships. It made me question you know some of the things that I kind of let slide and and um, in depictions of race, and I understand why, right? Like, we were given a whole set of tropes that we just sort of unthinkingly took into ourselves. And I think we would be mistaken if we imagined that we're at a place where, you know, we're getting it perfectly right. Um, we aren't. Um, wokeness is a continuing process. You know, there's no end point to this. Because, as I said, race doesn't mean anything. It's a social construction, and a society itself continues to construct and reconstruct and reimagine race, our portrayals will shift with it. And of course, with that in mind, 
you know, we have to, even if intentions don't matter in terms of how we receive the work, I think they do matter in terms of how we start to historically um, categorize the work. So I do teach racist work that I came across as a child or that I've read in other contexts, but I don't teach it with the same kind of intent that I would teach, say, a Shakespearean sonnet, which is to say this is something you need to emulate. You, you, you know, you, you teach these works to show students exactly what the tropes were of that day and how, in, how these particularly racist tropes might have inspired other writers to reimagine, rewrite, and work against those tropes later on. Um, you have said that the that you encourage writers to take risk, right? That, that, that ambition in that way is a good thing, and that literature, one of the uh, points of power of literature is uh, to change minds. Um, and so I, I guess your advice would be to, 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 to writers, uh, don't shy away from these things, but, but think through, uh, you know, these issues. Uh, and you, you uh, in a, another interview I was listening to with you, you quoted uh, Ibram Kendi, uh, how to be an mm-hmm. anti-racist? Uh, he said the uh, the same person. You know, we're we're not. You know, we're we're not. Uh, uh, we're complicated beings, I guess. That's <laughs> what we are. And the same person uh, can say racist things and anti-racist things. It's kind of a continuum really within true. persons. Yeah, and I think a lot of people uh, who've ever had a difficult family member know exactly this, right? Where um, you'll <laughs> have a conversation, and and your difficult family member who you adore will say something that is just abhorrent to you, and then five minutes later will say something that completely, you know, would seem to negate that. If they believe this thing, how could they believe that thing? Um, And the reality is, just as Ibram X. Kendi said, you know, all of us, all of us move through racist and anti-racist ideas all the time. And so it doesn't become very useful to start to categorize people in terms of they are solely this or they are solely that. Um, I think it's actually probably the fairly rare person who wants to commit entirely to one thing or the other, even um, even as all of us want to be anti-racist all the time. We've been forged, like I said, with the St. Elmo's Fire reference, like we've been forged in the fires of all sorts of thinking that takes a lot of work to get, you know, to, to negate. Um, so all of us are going to make these kinds of mistakes. All of us are going to have to be sort of educated and, and re-educate ourselves. And so when we have this idea that a writer that you know writes a poem that gets it wrong is then solely racist, or you know has a moment in a short story that devolves into these kinds of stereotypes, and we say, well, that you know this whole story fails, and you as a person fail, I think that this this shuts everybody down. Um, it does, and it's also not true because the reality is, you know, that that person who wrote that failure of a poem can then turn around and, and write something that absolutely gets it right. Um, and and most literary works, especially from the past, especially around this question of identity, are both good and bad simultaneously. So there's something really dishonest about putting texts into a good text, bad text uh, literary category. And the reality is that if you're an English major um, and you're in, in an English class, English literature class, that's not how we read. We're not there to learn how um, to behave necessarily, or to look at literature as providing us great moral examples, or to find ourselves even. Literature is there primarily to get us to have conversations and to think and to think carefully about language and the ways it's wielded, the ways it gets changed over the centuries. Um, and if we find ourselves in these texts 
great. If we find um, something to emulate in a positive way, fantastic. But that's not the primary purpose of studying literature. Um, and, and to that end, I find that there's something really wonderful about the text that is discomforting, that does sort of work against the grain, um, that makes me have to think harder or to, um, to argue back. But, you know, in writing workshops, I think going back to your original question um, about what to do when, <laughs> how do you encourage risk at the same time, understanding that risk can can lead to some real failures? You know, I, I don't think of reading via the lens of empathy as a good thing, but I, I believe in, in teaching and speaking to other people via the lens of empathy is very important. Because if intentions don't matter to the literary work as it is on the page, it does matter in terms of how we understand that person is moving between complex poles of racist and anti-racist thinking, um, between maybe ideas that we, we admire and maybe ideas we don't. We're talking with Paisley Rectal uh, for the hour today. We have about uh, 10 or so minutes left in this conversation. You can reach us by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Paisley Rectal's new book uh, is Appropriate, a Provocation, uh, which asks the questions, how do we properly define cultural appropriation? Is it always wrong? If we can write in the voice of another, should we? Many other uh, related questions. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Paisley Rectal. She's Utah's Poet Laureate, and uh, she is Distinguished Professor of English at uh, Utah, uh, University of Utah. Uh, creator, by the way, of uh, community web projects, Mapping Literary Utah and uh, Mapping Salt Lake City. Uh, so, Paisley Rectal, um, I was fascinated. This is near the end of your book. Um, you talk about an example or two of, I guess, what might be considered Real-life cultural appropriation, uh, not, not <laughs> imagined, right? Uh, so, so tell us about, I hadn't known about this example, uh, Herman Carrillo, am I pronouncing his name correctly? I, I, yeah, I, it's, I, I don't know myself, actually. I never got to meet him. I know, um, but I know a lot of, I know a lot of writers who, who do, and, and I, I'm friends with them, and they were gutted. So um, they call him Hash. Um, so Herman Carrillo, Hash H.G. Carrillo, was a creative writing professor over, I think, um, George Washington. Um, uh, maybe I'm making that up. I should. <laughs> it's in the book. Um, but he was a writer who um, claimed to be from Cuba, a Cuban emigre, Afro-Cuban emigre, a piano prodigy, and he wrote a volume of short stories and I think I believe a novel. He was working on a novel, um, Losing My uh, Espanol was the novel, and um, he was very well regarded. Um, and it turns out that he completely made that up. Um, he was African American. He grew up in Detroit. I guess he was good at piano. I think that might not have been made up. Um, he was uh, a gay man growing up in the you know 60s, 70s in Detroit. He his his own husband didn't even know that in fact um, he was not a Cuban emigre. So he spent his entire life pretending to be a completely different person than than he was, and com- claiming a an uh, an immigrant identity that he did not actually have. And his it, it came out. Uh, in the Washington Post after he died because his family, who saw his obituary in the paper, wrote in and said, you need to know that, in fact, um, uh, you know, this, this, this man was not any of the things he said he was, and we don't know why he did. And 
you know, my friends who knew him were utterly gutted. You know, they said he was the loveliest person. You would never have known that this was not true. And, you know, the question is, why does somebody do this? And what's uh, kind of amusing about this is that, you know, ever since that, there's been a number of people who have been exposed as um, transracial fakes, um, transcultural fakes. Um, there's a woman named Jessica Krug, who's a professor who had pretended to be also Afro-Latina, and she um, actually wrote uh, many scholarly articles um, about these, you know, the you know, Afro the Latinx experience and, and had been very well received and um, finally was outed. She admitted that she had been faking this identity all along. And then, of course, there's Rachel Dolezal as well. I mean, there's uh, this, this is something I don't treat very much in my book closely, largely because, of course, this is different from literary appropriation in one big way. I mean, most people who you know, appropriate in literature are not trying to be another person. They're trying to imaginatively inhabit or imagine or approximate another person. They are not claiming to be another person. And so this falls outside of that. And also one of the things that really struck me about studying some of these stories is that, you know, we might imagine that um, the people that do this are kind of all the same, that there's something, you know, the same thing that is really deeply wrong with them. But the more I started looking at it, and this is its own book, I think each one of them is a very different, very specific psychological profile. I mean, I think in Hash Carrillo's case, though I'll never know, I think there might be something there about, you know, and this is its own kind of stereotype, but growing up um, in an African-American you know, community in Detroit, but a gay man at a certain time when that was not necessarily um, well-received anywhere, I mean, how much of this imagined identity allowed him to give voice to a kind of outsiderness that was um, something that, you know, people could maybe embrace more easily, um, something that explained a, a fundamental sense of absence. Uh, I mean, I even speculate in large because, you know, the people that I, I love – loved him, you know, how much of it, this appropriated identity helped him survive. But on the flip side, you've got someone like Jessica Krug, who seems not to have had that issue, um, but this might have been a career thing. You know, for her, this was a way to get her work not just well-received in um, a scholarly community, but to be taken more seriously. And in that case, you know, I have much less sympathy. And then there's someone like Rachel Dolezal, who... You know, you know, there's there's much you can say about her, but one thing that I find maybe a little heartbreaking on on the end is that she seemed to have experienced a tremendous amount of abuse from her white family, and seems to have associated whiteness itself with a very um, damaging, physically and psychologically damaging kind of experience. So that she she just rejects it on all counts. And I, you know, I want to be very clear. I don't think any of these decisions that any of these people made were right. I think they're all terrible decisions in the end. But that doesn't mean I don't um, also understand that to at least maybe one or two of them, they might have been decisions made because it was the only way that these people could psychologically survive. And, you know, that does get us into another kind of question around appropriation, which is that oftentimes we think of appropriation as something that's done as, just an imaginative exercise, but that there is, you know, with political consequences and usually negative ones. But what if there are cultural and political consequences that are positive? 
other weirdly positive aspects of appropriation that um, the people who, you know, maybe have been disempowered when they appropriate back, does that actually give them something, a, a new sense of self, a new way of taking back kind of agency and power? And that's something that also interests me. Um, just, I just want to read this paragraph, and we don't really have time to... <laughs> to address it too, too deep. We just have about about one minute left. But this is so fascinating. So you you uh, you recount the, these real life examples that you've just talked about, and then you say, "This is Paisley Rectal." But I wonder too if I'm sympathetic to Carrillo's appropriation because of my own identity, not just as a writer, but as a biracial woman who reads to many as white, whose insistence on her own biraciality has perhaps struck others, as it has sometimes struck me as some particularly recalcitrant performance, some false and self, something false and self-serving, so culturally vague as to be finally meaningless. There have been many times in my life when looking into a mirror, I've wondered exactly who and what I am. That, that's a subject for a whole other hour, but uh, maybe <laughs> one one minute response to that. That's interesting. That the, the, this idea of, of people kind of insisting on an identity that, and and then you were you were want, trying to assist on identity for yourself. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that I understand about being raced is that race is a series of choices that are either offered or taken away from you, and you are most raced when you recognize what choices are being offered or taken away from you. And being biracial and somebody who looks to many as white and then looks to many other people as not white, I'm constantly presented with a series of shifting choices. And with that is, a, you know, for many years growing up, was this understanding that if I behave according to people's choices for me, um, I'm just going to become a cartoon. So for me, it's always been about trying to assert and insist upon an identity of wholeness that recognizes what I believe to be true about myself and what I believe to be true about the world. Um, And that's been sort of the darkest or hardest part about being biracial is that, um, you know, people have assumptions about what you're supposed to want and what you're supposed to do. And that's not just white people. It's Asian Americans, too. Um, Almost everyone I meet has something that they want me to perform. Yeah, and I, you know, if I experience that, I think everyone does. Right. Yeah. Very interesting. Uh, a very interesting book. Um, well worth the read. Appropriate uh, provocation. The author is a Utah poet laureate, uh, Paisley Rectal. She's a creative writing professor at University of Utah, and uh, you can find her uh, at her website, uh, paisleyrectal dot com. Paisley Rectal, uh, thank you so much. Always interesting. Thank you. Thank you so much. And uh, thanks everyone for listening to Access Utah. <laughs>